I love idioms, figures of speech, expressions. I like it when a man says, he's crazier than a road lizard. And things of that ilk. And I have a couple that I've heard over the years that would introduce our topic today. One is from our wise elder, Don Dutton, who has taught me the expression when you say, well, Don, how you doing? And so I don't know whether I'm washing or hanging out. See, we're too country, not country enough. I don't know whether I'm washing, which is washing, or hanging out. It's a pre Washer and dryer idiom, it means I'm not quite sure if I'm washing the clothes or I'm hanging up the clothes to dry on the line. It doesn't mean anything if you don't get it. (laughs) But it is a pithy little expression about the disorientation of life. You're in a cyclone of confusion. You don't know whether you're actually drying your clothes or washing your clothes. You're not sure... Everything's topsy-turvy, or as you might want to say, cattywampus. My dad had a good one. People would say, Tom, how you doing? Ha! Well, I was better, but I got over it. It's a profound theological reflection on the entropy of things. That no matter how good a thing is, it's going to fall apart, and probably it just did. It's a proverbial axiomatic statement of the thing we call the fall. Not autumn, but the theological cataclysmic event by which Adam and Eve destroyed everything for everyone. I don't know whether I'm washing or hanging out. I'm in a state of confusion. I don't know I was better, but I got over it. There's a vulnerability to our times here. And I think that fits nicely as we head into this fall season where people are starting back to school, they're starting back up with sports, there's this this wistfulness if you're given to pronounced yearnings. As fall comes and summer closes, a kind of grief that may, like a gnat of anxieties, pester you and plague you, you enter into a church year where small groups begin and Sunday school starts and your job, people get back all into work. And it's easy to not know whether you're washing or hanging out. It's easy to forget what it is you're even doing. It's easy to start hating everything. To even think of good things that you would normally like, but the fact that there's 18 of them on the same day in the same moment makes you just hate All of it. And so I, as we're going through this few weeks of talking about prayer and then our anchoring aspirations as a congregation, I wanted to use this famous passage that I had come to not like, but then I recently came to like it again. At the home of Mary and Martha. I think it's often misunderstood, and I'm not claiming to have the secret understanding of it. But we're told here that Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He comes to a village. Everything kind of telescopes onto Jesus. Where a woman named Martha opens her home to him. So far, so good. Hospitality. Welcome. Bringing the Savior into your home. 
Martha had a sister named Mary. We'll meet these women in other places in the Gospels. And Mary, we're told, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I suspect if you've hung around churchly circles, you've heard this passage two to three hundred thousand times in your life. It is often spilled out and explicated as a kind of comparison between an active life and a contemplative life, a contemplative life. And Mary is commended, therefore you should all become monks and nuns and live in a convent or a monastery. Give your life over to daily hours and hours and hours of prayer. Stop doing things. Maybe you've heard it differently than that, but hopefully you've not just heard that. But it's possible there's more going on here. And one of the things that Jesus does as as we listen in on this little episode is he gives us a nice diagnosis. He does that annoying thing that people might do to you sometimes when you come and ask for something. And he doesn't even address what it is you've asked. He addresses like the underneath thing, the thing beneath the thing, what you're really up to. He redirects you. Make her help me. I'm carrying the load all by myself. Have you ever walked through a house or through your business? through some volunteer responsibility and and muttered those similar sentiments of, I'm the only one who cares about this. I'm doing this. Why is nobody else helping me? You never say it in a cheerful way. And Jesus does not refer her to Tim Ferriss, who will give her life hacks how to become more effective, how to generate more productivity with lesser inputs. He doesn't give her a model of efficiency to say, here's how you need to get things done. He doesn't even tell her that the stuff she needs to do isn't actual stuff that needs to be done. He doesn't discount that. He doesn't say, you don't have anything to do. You've misread the thing. No. He just says, Martha, Martha, You are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it won't be taken away from her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset, or other translations might say distracted. You're upset, you're distracted, you're worried about many things. We could take this as our diagnosis for life as we enter the fall. Worried and upset about many things. Do you feel worried? Do you feel upset? Do you feel overloaded? Not sure how you're going to get it all in, how you're going to make it through. The school year has begun. Your work has newly begun. Frenetic activity has begun. Worried and distracted by many things. 
this week, I decided something. Because of my pronounced spirituality and Herculean Christ-likeness, in a moment of not having thought about it much, I said, Dad Gummit, I'm deleting Twitter off my phone. That was my only social media outlet. And I just deleted it, and I just decided, I'm not getting off it. I'll look at it later in the nights or something on a computer. I just didn't want to be able to look at it on my phone. Because you know what? I found out, like Wendell Berry said about smoking, he said, I got to where I could have a cigarette and not even enjoy it. And there was no pleasure in that. And I got to where I was looking at the Twitter box anytime there was a break in the action. And I was reading inane things, and I was being immersed in a sort of pseudo-world that was taking itself at a level of importance that was, well, wrong. This outrage machine that was echoing the same people outraging to each other. And I realized, oh man, I'm actually a character in a screw tape letter. I think I'm actually maybe being acted on by the devil. There's a screw tape letter where the senior devil says something to the effect of, you know, one of the ways you can trip up your patient is you don't actually have to get them to be a murderer. You could just get them to be a card player. If you can do anything to just get them to while away their time, stare into a fire late at night for no good reason, read advertisements, give themselves to trivialities, and just never let them suspect that they're being lulled down a solid, I mean, a, a softly sloping path, unmarked and gentle to hell. They'll never wake up to it. You can separate them from God entirely and they will never have made a conscious decision to stay away from Him. They'll just have made a thousand tiny decisions to give themselves to stupid things, to distractions, to worries, to upsetness. And I thought I was doing that. That's what I'm doing. I'm letting myself get lured away. I can all of a sudden look up and say, Where, I just spent 15 minutes reading people being outraged. And I don't see any coalescence between what they're screaming about and when I walk out the front door in the life that I'm in. But when I'm in it, I think that's the real world. And of course, I'm only talking about social media and our interaction with it because I'm only talking about myself. I'm not thinking that you'll listen to it and apply it to yourself. Thank you. I was an exasperated. (sighs) Worried and upset about many things. He keeps going and he says, in the end, what you may be able to do is get your patient to a place where they realize that they spent their life doing neither what they ought nor what they want. Isn't that interesting? That's sly and clever. If you can just get people to just never do what they ought to do, and in fact, while away their time so they don't even do what they want to do, 
They're just held captive by anything and everything so as not to have to pay attention to anything of importance. So that's one danger for us. That's one way that we are incredibly distracted and worried and upset about many things is that we are letting ourselves be worried about a lot of stuff. We're letting a lot of worries in, sometimes fake. And we're not paying much attention to bigger questions of why am I here? Why do I go to work in the morning? Why am I so interested in Instagram? Why would I play sports? Why would I want to make more money? How should we parent our children? How should I be spending my time? These things don't occur to us if we're constantly ignoring them. Worried and upset about many things, but not paying attention to most important things. And it's interesting to me that Martha here is diagnosed as having a lot on her mind, and she's busying herself with a lot of distractions and with a lot of preparations, actual preparations. And for most of us, Jesus' advice to Mary that he, she would sit there and pay attention to Jesus and that that's better, it sounds a little bit irresponsible to us, I think. And you might wonder, why is it, how is it that Jesus is being so irresponsible that he's urging Martha into a level of irresponsibility? He's holding up this person who's sitting there doing nothing. And letting Martha, poor old Martha, sit there and busy herself, taking care of so many things. And I think asking that question helps you start to see what Jesus is up to. Because this passage isn't about an active life versus a contemplative life. It's about being hospitable. And you know very well the scenario, and you may have done it yourself if you've had guests in your house, or you've, you've been around people who are phenomenal hosts, and have you ever wanted them to just stop it for a second and come sit with you? Okay, 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 yes, there's not enough coffee, okay, we already had desserts, please sit down, stop it, sit with us, talk to us, quit fussing about, the dishes, will, they'll, they'll be there three weeks from now if we don't tend to them. Sit down. Jesus is saying, I'm in your house. And you're making preparations for the dinner, but you're not attending to the guest. You're not paying attention to the guest. And Mary here has done this noble thing. She is seated at the feet of Jesus, a sign of discipleship, of apprenticeship. She's saying, I am letting his words be formative for me. So I'm pausing my activities for a minute. I'm learning who I am from him. I'm figuring out what the world is like from him. I'm paying attention to him because he's right here. She's being hospitable to the guest who's there. And that's Martha's error is she's not being hospitable. And of course, in this very passage in Luke chapter 10, right before it, there's a Error of hospitality, you could say. When a lawyer asks Jesus about loving his neighbor, and he tells that famous story about the good Samaritan, and the religious folks were inhospitable. They were 
inattentive. They weren't paying attention. They were too busy to go over to the other side of the road to help a man who was in distress, who'd been beaten by robbers, who had been left for dead. They couldn't be bothered. They wouldn't extend themselves. They wouldn't open up their lives to the hospitality of a neighbor. In the chapter before, he speaks of welcoming children in his name. If you welcome a child in my name, you welcome me. Jesus thinks that the cure for your worriedness and your distractedness and your being concerned about many things is that you would hospitably welcome Jesus into your life regularly. That's the cure, that you would hospitably welcome Jesus into your life regularly. And it's worth pointing out that when he tells Martha you're worried about many things, he wants her not to be worried about many things. It's really comforting, I think, if you can listen to Jesus and whatever pronouncements he makes and whatever invitations he makes to say, do you realize that underneath his concern is he wants you to be at ease. He wants you to know repose. He wants you not to be distracted. He wants you not to be a worried wreck. He doesn't want you to walk around with a sense of impending doom. He doesn't want you to be fidgety. He doesn't want you to think that something bad's about to happen all the time. He doesn't want you to be angry at everybody. Because you have so much to do. He doesn't want those things for you. But his solution runs counterintuitive to us. Because he doesn't say how to get more productive. He says, welcome me into your life. Pay attention to me. This is what Mary has chosen. She's learning how to be a human Through the image of God, the exact representation of humanity is right here. And she is offering herself up to be changed by his words. One of the things that keeps us from this, I think, is simply forgetting what it is that we're for. Or why it is that we exist. C.S. Lewis tells a story in a letter. How in the early 50's. In the coronation of young Queen Elizabeth II. Who's still the queen. Now 120 years later. A remarkable woman. If you watch this Netflix series The Crown. It's a remarkable series I think. And he talks about this coronation. And his... Pen pal, that's surely what he called it, his corresponder in the letter had asked, did you people in Britain think of this as fairy tale-ish, Camelot-ish? And he goes, no, not really. We thought of it with a certain ethos and a certain awe and a certain pity and a certain mystery. Because in the middle of all this pageantry, you had this young girl who seemed herself to understand something of the sacramental nature of what was happening. And by that he means the fact that the heavens were poking through this actual ceremony that she was being injected and endowed with divine authority in the act of placing a crown on her head. And he said, and in this moment when you see this tiny little young girl 
and this huge, massive, heavy crown being placed on her head, you get this sense that we're watching a metaphor for humanity itself. Being given this incredible charge as vice regents of the royal image of God. This incredible responsibility all held up by a tiny little neck and a young little head. The juxtaposition of the heaviness of the crown and the vulnerability of the one who wears it. And if you start to think about that, you realize that's our situation. He's pinned it right. That we don't think of it that much, I don't think. We don't think of the fact that God himself has said to every single person in this room, you are helping me govern, steward, and nurture the universe by your actions and by your prayers. This is your charge. I have placed you in your school, on your team, at your hospital, at your law firm, in your classroom, in your nursery. I have placed you where you are as a royal image to reflect the wisdom, the goodness, the care, the love of God, to govern as God would govern in this place. It is a lofty privilege. Whether you work at Kinko's or whether you're a CEO on the top floor of a big building, it's a lofty privilege that we don't think about very much. And if you start to think about it, you realize there's a gap. I feel vulnerable because I'm charged with this amazing task to represent Jesus Christ in the world, and I'm not sure how to do that. I'm not even sure how I'm going to make it through the next hour, you might wonder. I'm not even sure how I'm going to get out of bed on time, you might wonder. I'm not even sure how I'm going to make it out of chemistry class, you might wonder. And there you have the invitation to welcome Jesus into your life. How on earth... Are you going to carry out the vocation of being co-laborers with God, as Paul called it? Or as being the image of God, a kingdom of priests representing God to people and people to God? How are you going to do that if you don't talk to God? A lot. If you're not shaped by what he thinks. This is why Dallas Willard could say in a very succinct and handy way, you could put in your pocket like a wallet, like a phone. He says, prayer is nothing more than talking to God about what we are going to be doing together today. Prayer is nothing more than talking to God about what we're going to be able to, what we're going to be doing together today. It's this real, full realization that the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you as a Christian and that you are now thrown out into the world to bear witness to a heavenly reality. How are you going to do that with an unaided heart? Michelangelo prayed that. My unaided heart, my unassisted heart is barren. This is why Christians pray are ones who start to get serious about being spiritually receptive, want to pray, they want to get around Jesus because they realize what they're called to and they know they'll never fulfill it. By themselves. If you want to see what happens in a life of prayerlessness, just watch your life. If you just follow your natural course. 
Watch the life of people around you. If they just follow their natural course, they just do what they want. Do you just naturally, despite the most tweeted thing of all times, do you naturally love all people all the time? Or do you not find yourself becoming their critic and hateful towards them? A summary of our age would be, I hate people who hate people. They're so blind. There's got to be three people who understood that. I hate people who hate people. They're so blind. Yes, right. We are. If you just follow your natural heart, if you just follow your natural predilections and your natural ways of thinking, you're going to not be led in good ways very often at all. That's why all these lists in the Bible about fornication and greed and anger and bitterness and backbiting and gossip. These are what happen if you just give full vent to your own life. You need assistance from the heavens if you're going to represent the Christ who's holding all things and renewing all things and is employing you. He wants you to do it with him. So if you start to think, I have this amazing calling and I feel very vulnerable in it, you're going to try to get up cozy You're going to try to welcome Jesus into your life a lot. You're going to try, as the day begins, to have uh, what you might call set-apart prayer. Now, you may not do your best praying in the morning. I can remember as a kid telling my mom on the way to school when she was so happy and she was so chatty and she was telling me things and talking to me and saying, "Um, Mom, uh, do do you think you could just not talk to me in the mornings? Because, you know, I was loving it's a wonderful kid. Nothing makes a mom's heart beam more than that, saying, please don't talk to me. It was jerky of me. I wasn't ready in the morning to have big conversations. But one of the things you can do as you start your day is this realization that you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. You're his work of art, and he's sending you out into the world are you, are you reminding yourself in prayer? Are you inviting him into that to work? The work of being a student, which seems so dreadful to you, the work of going to write code or write briefs or teach kids, does it seem dreadful? Well, then invite Jesus into it. Be hospitable to him. Say, lead me and guide me. Give me love for this subject. Give me love for these things. Give me love for this work. Let me represent you in it. Let me care about it. Let me realize the mantle of your royal care that I've been given. You forget who you are sometimes, which is why we're worried and distracted about many things, and we don't invite Jesus in. And the other thing is we just don't, Believe it very much. We misunderestimate it, as the former President Bush said. We misunderestimate the importance of what's really going on when you pray or when you attend to Jesus. You might have heard me say, say the story before the man who, which is a very true kind of story. When you're a pastor, people think that you're made of Dixie cup. And so that if you hear someone say a curse word, you will instantly crumple. They never suspect that you might have used them before. 
that you might have heard of all of them, that you might know more worse things than they do. They might not realize how bad you are. Our professor told us that we were all in seminary, not because we were so good, but because we were so bad, and that was the only way God would keep us straight. But so this man comes up to a preacher, and he lets the curse word fly, as happens sometimes, and then he's embarrassed. And he says, Preacher, I'm sorry, I... I cuss a little and you pray a little, but neither one of us means a thing by it. <laughs> and I think if you realize that that's really what happens a lot, do you, do you think when you kneel down to pray or when you stand up to pray or when you get in the car to pray or when you pray at church, do you think I'm about to affect the future of the world? I mean, seriously, do you ever think that? I'm about to bring into being things that have not happened yet, that God has not yet brought about. I'm about to affect tomorrow, and then tomorrow is after that. I'm about to interact with the sovereign Lord who has delegated authority to people on earth who, by their actions and by their prayers, get to help determine some of the things that happen tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. We really get to ask for things, and God really promises to respond to them. If your words, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you show yourselves to be my disciples by bearing much fruit. Do you ever sit down when you pray and think, I am about, I'm not doing like just some empty ritual that has no bearing in anything, like somebody cussing and not really meaning it. I'm fixing to form the future. I'm fixing to get filled up with Jesus Christ. I'm fixing to get rebolstered for my calling out in the world. And if you realize what your calling is, you'll do that seriously. Because you'll realize how many things you're up against. Is parenting easy? Is navigating college easy? Is being a teenager easy? Is figuring out how to manage your finances easy? Is figuring out how to manage your own stinking self easy? Jesus says, will you be hospitable to me? Welcome me in, and I'll show you how to be a human. I am the picture, the archetype, the blueprint of what humans are going to become, and this is what I'm making you into. You've got to interact with me. We've got to talk together about what we're going to do today. And as you're talking to him and you rehearse your calling and you get a new sense of it and you realize you're actually doing an actual thing that's going to affect the future, you're also getting to where you're going to be more open to welcoming Jesus in and all the places he might appear. Not just in your private prayer time, but as you go out into the world, your, your perspective starts to shift. Instead of no longer doing what you don't want to do and what you ought not to do, you're actually doing what you ought. And you're paying attention and you're realizing What people seldom realize, that every time you meet a person, you're meeting the image of God. There's an opportunity placed before you. All of a sudden, all your interruptions, you think of them, well, maybe this is an opportunity. Instead of thinking, I've got these plans and these people are messing up my plans, you start to think, oh, well, I did have these plans, but I am... A representative, I'm an ambassador for the King Most High. 
And he certainly has the right to redirect me and reassign me, and maybe he's done just that. As Bonhoeffer said, why shouldn't someone else's schedule be more important than mine? Why is mine so important? The people in that dreadful story in Matthew 25, they're all surprised. They were surprised at how they had ignored Jesus. No, they said. That's what the Greek says. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. We never, we never neglected you, Jesus. We didn't see you were, we saw some dude who was all tatted up and he hadn't had a shower in a while and he had some weird piercings and he had been drinking too much. But we didn't see you. We talked to this lady who was like really angry. She was screaming at us. But we didn't, and we told her to get lost and said some other creative things. Oh, it wasn't you. And Jesus says, whatever you didn't do to these least of these, that you didn't do to me. That woman was grieving terribly. She just lost somebody in her life. Your kindness would have mattered to her. That man that you neglected, that was the image of God that you just threw away. Like he was nothing. And of course, there's an element of surprise on the other end, too, and these people didn't realize. How did we know? How did, when did we give you some water to drink, Jesus? When were you lonesome and we, we sat with you for a minute? Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. There's this sense that all of a sudden, Christ might meet you anywhere. When you start ordering your life to say, I'm going to be hospitable to Jesus. He's going to resource me. He's going to take care of everything. He's going to work through me, and we're going to work in tandem. Who knows where I might meet him today in my work and in my play? Who knows how he might help out in the thorny issues at work? Who knows? It's a great way to get rid of your worries and your distraction. Johann Sebastian Bach was a hip-hop artist who had some lit music. It was dope. And he won several MTV awards, music awards. You might know this, but one of the things he did in this prodigious output of compositional activity, these compositions he wrote in the late 17th century and early 18th century, is at the beginning of every composition, he wrote the letters J.J. Yesu Yuva. Jesus, help me. Yesu, Yuva, Jesus, help me. And at the end of every composition, he wrote SDJ, G, you've seen that, Soli Deo Gloria. He wrote in Latin, that might be pretentious to you, that's fine. He lived in a different time. To God alone be the glory. He had this sense, though he had these phenomenal talents, which he was using, he realized that his daily work and his daily life was something that had to happen, smashed between help from Jesus, and a concern to honor Jesus. This was how the beauty of his life was going to happen. If you try to make your life beautiful on your own, with an unassist from the heavens, your life will be like every other life. 
If you will welcome Jesus, who doesn't want you to be worried or distracted or overly upset about many things, if you will hospitably welcome him into your life and say, Lord, what are we going to do today? You'll welcome him into other people's lives through your prayers for them. You'll ask him to help you be on the lookout in your work for him and have the resources to meet him with honor, with tenderness, with forgiveness, with respect. With your own little Yesu Yuva, Jesus, help me. Then your life and our lives together might be a living billboard that actually says across it, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Let's do that. Amen.